Hello and welcome to Mythmakers, the podcast for fantasy fans and fantasy creatives, brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. My name is Julia Golding. I'm an author, but also I'm a director of the centre. And today I'm delighted to be joined by one of our graduate students, shall we say. Uh, Stanley here has just completed the six-week online fantasy course. And during that course, it transpired that Stanley is a semi-retired minister, Stanley Hanna, from the Presbyterian Church in Aylmer, Quebec, in Canada. I hope I'm getting that right, Stanley. And at some point, uh, it came out when we were chatting that he has taught a course on Tolkien to theology students. And I thought this was a really interesting uh, take on Tolkien and invited Stanley to come and talk to us. He t- you taught that at the uh, Ottawa School of Theology and Spirituality, if I've got that right. Yes, yes. It was an online course. It was all on Zoom. There were about 30, 32 students each week, um, and it was a, a five-week course, two hours. Um, and that's really fascinating that theology students have cons- find enough to say and there's probably even more to say about Tolkien to cover that course but before we talk about the sort of subject matter you were covering there perhaps we should row back a bit and find out about your own um, journey with Tolkien through your life and how you came to end up teaching him. My my first exposure to uh, J.R.R. Tolkien was uh, actually when I was in graduate school I had uh, uh, completed two years and I needed to take a, uh, an internship uh, someplace. And so I, I set that all up and I arrived there. And of course, all of a sudden I was out from under this uh, required uh, hundreds of pages of collateral reading for my courses. And so I decided to take advantage of that time and do some reading for myself. And uh, a friend had recommended The Hobbit and uh, Lord of the Rings. And so this was in the late 70s. And so I picked those up and I started reading them. And I read right through The Hobbit and then right straight through The Lord of the Rings. Um, and uh, and then after that, I got interrupted by heading back to graduate school <laughs> to finish my, uh, my program. And then after that was when I started studying the Silmarillion and uh, exposed to other of uh, Tolkien's writings, as well as C.S. Lewis and some of these other, uh, uh, some of the other inklings. But uh, Tolkien held a particular uh, fascination for me, and I I focused uh, primarily on on him in my readings and enjoyed it very much. it was great. So, Stanley, when you were reading him in the late 70s, um, I would imagine, particularly if you start with The Hobbit, you're coming to him just as a storyteller at that stage. At what yes. point did you begin to think about the uh, other meanings that might apply to your own profession as a minister? You were explaining to me um, before we started this uh, chat that you, you've been involved with lots of different churches in the Protestant tradition um, so you, you represent quite a wide spectrum <laughs> for Christianity. So perhaps we just run through where you've been a minister over your life. 
Well, I've, uh, I'm ordained with the Methodist Church, um, and uh, I've been ordained for 40, 41 years. Um, but I've also had opportunity to serve in uh, various capacities as minister, visitation, uh, pastoral care, and that in the Anglican Church um, in Canada, also with the United Church of Canada. And also, uh, most recently, I've been helping with a congregation of, in Aylmer, Quebec, with the Presbyterian Church. And uh, okay, but so, prior to that, but, I was with the Methodists. Yeah. So that's quite a, a journey um, through very sort of sister churches, really, aren't they? They're quite close in yes. a theological position. Um, so going back to the younger Stanley uh, reading Tolkien, was it like a dimmer switch coming on where you realized um, that there was an application or is it something that came rather suddenly to you? I, I think the, the thing that grabbed me um, and helped me, I, I grew up in a, in a very rural, isolated community in Southern Ontario uh, in Canada. And uh, with all of its provincialisms and and uh, kind of narrow kind of perspective, and what Tolkien did for me was expand my perspective on first of all who God is and on the whole concept of of good and versus evil. And uh, suddenly, my world through Tolkien just got so much bigger. And uh, uh, and uh, and it's continued to grow. Um, uh, I've appreciated that probably more than anything else is that that uh, kind of gave me this leap forward, if you will, uh, in my perspective and my understanding of of uh, of not only Tolkien's cosmos but also ours. And uh, uh, and it shed light on things and, and uh, gave me some interesting insights into things that I'd, I'd speculated about and thought about while I was growing up. But uh, suddenly I was finding some answers uh, in, in Tolkien's writings that helped me understand even uh, the, the, the bigger concept of God and, and his, uh, his creation. Um, so that, that was a, a, a jump start, if you will, for me. Yeah, one of the things I um, say when I do school school visits about creative writing is that one way of thinking about fantasy is it's like a laboratory. So you take things from our world and run the experiment in the mm -hmm. world you've created. And so you can run the experiment of what does evil look like, um, what does courage look like, and all these other things within a creative world in in a in a way that is in a sense purer and able to you're able to systematize it mm -hmm. uh, in fan which perhaps gets lost amongst the signals in the real world um so stanley let's have an actual think about some of the specifics you mentioned there your understanding of the nature of evil um and good uh was expanded by your thinking about tolkien is this something that you taught on your your course in Ottawa. Uh, yes, the the title of the course was J.R.R. Tolkien and his concept of uh, of good and evil, and uh, and so we got to take a look at the bigger perspective, uh, 
his uh, particularly the Silmarillion speaks so much to um, to the development of of these things um, and these concepts. And um, uh, the the thing is that I believe that Tolkien's writing is so deep um, and continues to be mined, if you will, by authors in each generation. I, uh, just since I started studying in preparation for teaching that course, I was running across all kinds of new books of authors who were putting out um, all this material. And uh, I think of Harvey's, uh, uh, the, the Song of Middle-Earth and uh, The Hobbit Wardrobe and, and Great War um, by LeConte and uh, uh, the, these various authors um, who uh, the, the uh, Tolkien and the invention of myth, that uh, great book that uh, is a, a whole group of scholars have delved and gone deep into uh, what Tolkien represents. And I think his uh, enduring legacy in his writing is that he plumbed the depth of, of humanity um, through and, and but did so with through the, his own uh, faith perspective, and he he was grounded, um, and the reason that his work, at least that's what I'm I feel I'm discovering is that the reason his work continues to appeal to generation after generation, is this uh, is this grounding and his the the touchstones of the virtues and all of those things that. Um, that we all are looking for and need in our need in our lives and and um, are are hoping to discover and and uh, embrace for ourselves. I was thinking particularly about the the nature of evil in Tolkien because one way there's been a sort of poor copy of Tolkien is the idea of there being a dark lord. You know that's become a bit of a a cliche. Uh, mm -hmm. Terry Pratchett has fun with that, saying he thinks dark lords should be rationed in the world of fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, that isn't really where the evil resides. Though by Lord of the Rings, it's an eye at the top of a tower. That's only um, the pinnacle of, literally the pinnacle of the evil. It's appeared in many different forms in many different places. Uh, throughout Silmarillion and in the characters Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. So did you find that you were discovering more about how evil functions by following that path through the Silmarillion to the culmination in Lord of the Rings? I, I think it broadened my perspective on uh, we the, the thing that I... I think that that was most important to me was the fact that Tolkien does not avoid evil, nor does he negate it, nor does he um, ignore it. Uh, instead, he hits it head on. Uh, each of his characters are faced with uh, the, the challenges that this, this evil brings. Um, each of them suffer. Each one of them are have their faults, and and in in some ways the 
their exposure to the evil um, even kind of puts a lens on that, enhances it. But then they, you know, they're, but he doesn't leave it there. Uh, Tolkien continues to move through it in that we, we, we face the evil, we face it with uh, each of these characters. And at some point, each of them, they, they exhibit hope. And, um, and also, I think, uh, redemption. They, in the spite of their, their failures, in the spite of the fact that they're all flawed, they still um, work through and, and uh, hit it head on. And um, it's kind of like Scott Peck's The Road Less Traveled, in which he talks about the, the neuroses, which is the great uh, ailment of the Western society in that we... Um, we we have uh, uh, neuroses the avoidance of reality, and so here we have each of these characters facing their reality, facing the challenge that is before them. They they have to work through this, and they emerge stronger on the other side. Evil isn't done away with, uh, but it is uh, it is conquered through all of these virtues of, of faith and and love and and uh, help and uh, friendship, uh, all of these things uh, conspire to, to overcome uh, the, the evil that is present, that wants to pull apart and destroy and all of those kinds of things. So that, that has helped me understand um, in, a, in, a, in a greater way and be able to give me a, a, a much larger picture of what evil is and in our world. Um, and and the it, it, parallels between uh, J.R. Tolkien's uh, Middle Earth and and uh, and our our society today. It is interesting that actually every character is a failure, not yes. a failure as a character, but they all fail. They have mm -hmm. a moment of failure. Yeah, um, all of them. So mm -hmm. even someone who's as admirable as anybody can imagine, being Sam, he still has mm -hmm. his moment when he. Um, he he leaves Frodo lying there. Uh, yep. He uh, failure is perhaps a strong way of putting it. But, um, it's a terrible choice he has to make, but mm -hmm. he makes the wrong choice. So he he's not. He's probably the most perfect, of pure of heart of all the characters, really, isn't mm -hmm. he? Uh, yes. In in the lineup, because yeah. uh, even someone like Galadriel has had a shady past. <laughs> Way yep. back in the beginning of the film, really, <laughs> we're never quite sure what she did when. Um, when they cross the ice and all that, it's, I think mm -hmm. the jury. But clearly, she's had a, had a past, even though she's ended up in a good place. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I wanted to sort of think about the theme that's intertwined with evil, which is temptation, because it's a very strong theme in um, the books of C.S. Lewis, who obviously is the other big inkling, writing alongside Tolkien. I'm thinking particularly of that archetypal image of the Turkish delight in mm -hmm. uh, the life and the wardrobe. Um, and also he talks about it in the screw tape letters about, you know, how you, which is his humorous letters between a senior and a junior devil, which again is another quite funny, but very insightful portrait of humanity. Mm -hmm. um, temptation is a huge theme of two running through the Lord of the Rings 
everybody gets their moment when they have well all the main characters get their moment when they have to choose and that's what sets them apart do you think that um temptation is in a sense something which every single character has to deal with even the sort of valar and the, the god type elements in lord of the rings or is there anybody who's aside from that trial i i think f from from what i've read i think all of them uh have to deal with the temptation each one of them are confronted with the uh the desire of the ring um and of course it has a power of its own that seems to work on them and uh uh, the the only one, of course, it doesn't affect is Tom Bombadil, but he's he's kind of a oh, yes, of strange uh, <laughs> uh, character anyway. But um, uh, uh, Bilbo, you know, was you know grabbed the ring, you know, found it, but then he he immediately kind of dissembles in that he always talks about the fact that he uh, he you know he found it or and 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 of course he did but he 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 kind of gives a different picture of how it came into his possession and um and each one of them have uh the temptation even he, he they try to give it away or they try to give it to gandalf to you know galadriel all of them they they all have to face that uh, incredible moment where they have to choose um and it and it's a it's a forced moment but but tolkien deals with that so so wonderfully in that they they have to reach down within themselves and say uh no i'm i'm not going to be tempted with that boromir probably is the one who uh we see uh really uh succumbs and come is over overwhelmed by it and that he, you know, continues to, you know, want it until finally, all of a sudden, the moment comes when he realizes that uh, he's he's done something very, very wrong, and uh, and then he's, you know, and but in his dying moment, he's given that 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 uh, moment of redemption. Um, mm. and, and Aragorn, you know, restores his his position and and uh uh reflects on him as his king and you know and and uh, promises him a proper burial and um and in tolkien's world that's the that is the the redemption they they still have to suffer the consequences of their actions but um they they are redeemed through you know their attitude and what it what they had uh um uh, you know accomplished by re by now, refusing to be overcome i think thinking about it in terms of from a creative writing perspective i think temptation is a really interesting way of making otherworldly characters relatable because yep. mm -hmm. um tom bombadil isn't relatable because of his spirit of nature pan above everything mm -hmm. um stature but the moment when we can relate to someone as elegant and queenly as Galadriel is the moment when she has to face her desires and her thirsts it makes her 
sort of human. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the same goes with mm-hmm. the gods, because the gods in the Silmarillion also at times have moments of temptation to interfere or not interfere. That's when they come closest. They still remain fairly distant, but that's the moment mm-hmm. when they become closest. Um so I think temptation is a really important thing to remember when creating characters as a writer, mm-hmm. that that mm-hmm. is when the reader actually can empathize even with the most unlikely of beings, uh, you know, be it a, an elf queen or a, an ent. I, of course, I don't think Creepy ever, he doesn't come across the ring. It'd be interesting to know what his response would have been. I've got a feeling he may have been tempted to take it to set the the world to rights <laughs> yeah. so maybe he would have also had to struggle though he would have un- overcome it as well i think yeah. um okay so one of the notable things of course having talked about the sort of the values and the ethics in lord of the rings is that it is a world that has no observable religious practices there is some religion in um numenor there's a, a sort of a place which is dedicated to the Valar. And of course there is in the Elven world, the mountains where they dwell among them. So mm-hmm. there's a set of the gods walking amongst the elves. Oh, they're kind of like archangel type gods, aren't they? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it is very interesting to choose to put the Christian story outside the narrative. Whereas Tolkien himself saw it as a Christian work that's one of the things he says about it as a catholic story mm-hmm. um which contrasts of course to c.s lewis who puts all of that in his world did you have any thoughts about why if that works and what it what it, would would you be able to have middle earth with some with the christian element of the story a sort of jesus figure in there how do you think that would work i mean it's one of the things i just sort of speculate about if it would have actually stood up as a story yeah that's uh, that's a really good it's a really good question i i'm not sure it would work the same uh uh because you would be you, you would have to define it in a way that uh right now the way it it stands um all of the 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 things that were important to J.R. Tolkien in understanding humanity and the development of the cosmos and the coming together of those things and uh how we relate to one another and uh those uh virtues how good faces uh evil and all of those things. I mean, there's so much that's Christian about those things, but it tends to be a little more nebulous. And, and I think if you defined it, you would probably, from my perspective, I think you would diminish um, what what was taking place amongst the, the company. Um, with uh, uh, Gandalf and the interaction with the with the elves, the learning to to work together to accomplish the big thing. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it would have uh, it 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 would have certainly brought a different uh, flavor to it, and I'm not sure it would have 
had as much appeal. I, I think there's yeah, I think this. It certainly, yeah, it would have yeah. closed it down. It would have certainly put yeah. off people coming at it. You know, the shared space, which is Tolkien, which is what I really love about it, that you can yes. come at it from all faiths and no faith because it's a, a, you know, welcome space. Mm-hmm. I suppose looking at it, though, maybe there is a sense of Tolkien's understanding of Christ is is fractured in many different places so you get a, a glimpse of it in Gandalf you get a glimpse of it in the sort of scapegoat figure of Frodo carrying the burden for everybody else you know you can trace it but it's not mm-hmm. located in one figure not an Aslan um, and also of course Tolkien hated allegory so he would have not enjoyed <laughs> putting yeah. an allegorical Christ in his <laughs> world I don't think yeah but it, that's, is it, or make, that's right the other option is he thought of it as like an Old Testament world um, when I've done books where I've put a sort of world religion in it, I've always thought of it like that, that I imagine mm. this in some way as prior, a, a sort of prior history, and it frees you up mm. to mm-hmm. not have mm-hmm. to do an Islamic or a Christian or a whatever uh, your background right. is story. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah the, it's so, the, it's it's kind of infused uh, throughout yeah, this um this perspective that he had um, and it's, it's infused in the writing, but it's not um, blatant. Um, And, and, and when you uncover it, it's one of those aha moments rather than, uh, Oh, that's what I was looking for kind of thing, or that's what I was expecting to find it. It -hmm. just suddenly appears. And uh, to, to me, that is probably one of the greater and uh, long-term appeals and why, again, uh, this this work continues to be mined generation after generation. They come at it and saying, you know, there's so much here. I'm not sure Tolkien himself meant to, you know, the, for, for all of these, these commentaries and everything else to be written on his work. And yet the depth of it is there. I believe because he was writing from a place of of uh, uh, of deep uh, faith and consideration, uh, and how he he viewed his his own faith in his world, and how that interacted, and so that that's become infused in the uh, in the work itself. Mm. Yes, I think it, it's that feeling that it doesn't tarnish, it doesn't wear away because it goes all the way through everything mm-hmm. um it's not not a sort of cheaply built quick built world it's yeah it, you never you don't reach the end of the map there do you it's always no. expand feeling that um it's got the fullness of our own world in there and of course he wanted mm-hmm. to be a creator and he achieved that brilliantly it's it's, it's an inspiration oh. and, and something which we can I think very few people can achieve. <laughs> yeah. So we always end our um, podcast with deciding where in all the fantasy world is the best place to go for something. Uh, we've done forests and museums and libraries and all sorts of things before. And I thought in your honor, Stanley, if you don't mind, um, <laughs> we would think about where is the best place to be a priest or a religious leader? Um 
And I think we should also add in at this time, where's the worst place? Because I actually found it easier to think of all the terrible places to be a religious leader <laughs> rather than a good one. Because I think fantasy writers often use um, religion as a kind of, you know, the wicked principle in, in their worlds. So mm. did you have a thought where would be the best place to be a priest? Well, I think probably Narnia. Um, be, because you've got the the presence of Aslan um, and uh, that there would be a sense of the presence of, of Aslan in uh, there. Uh, and um, you'd be working with uh, an understanding that this, this world is infused with that wonder and grace and awe and beauty. And, and that um, I, I think that would, that that's my initial response you know i i've i've read a lot pretty widely in in fantasy literature and i like all of the you know all of these different worlds i've encountered but i think in answering your question it would seem to me that narnia would be uh the place to land um and doing yeah, doing the kind of doing the kind of work that i do and uh yeah that's the one I picked out as well, um, partly because, of course, if you're uh, somehow in the, the leadership team with Aslan, if, if he had such a thing, you yeah. could get to be something else, like you get to be a minotaur or a, a fawn. That would yeah. be fun. You could actually experience life as another creature or a talking mm -hmm. badger. Um, yeah, so that, I think that's a good way to go. So what about the worst place to be a religious leader? Uh, Westeros. Uh, <laughs> the oh, okay. Game of, Game of Thrones. Short <laughs> life expectancy. <laughs> I, thought, I thought of a couple. I thought of um, um, they're all pretty bad in Philip Pullman's um, Dark Materials world. I don't want oh, to yes. any of those because not only are you a bad guy, but you also get a really rubbish daemon. You get like a, a cockroach or a nine mm -hmm. something like that. Um, so yep. that seems pretty miserable. And, and then the other one is. Um, uh, Trudy Canavan's Age of Five series starts with the Priestess of the White, and I remember reading that, thinking this is a really rubbish place to be a god yeah. because they sort of have to experience almost terrible things. Um, so it's a definitely an adult book. So I think it's up there with Westeros as a, a rubbish experience. <laughs> anyway, Stanley, thank you so much for being with us, and. Oh. Um, Sounds like you've got more courses. You've you've done good and evil, but there's lots more Tolkien theme um, that you could do for your uh, school of theology and spirituality. So good luck with future teaching on that. And thank you so much with being for being with us today. Thank you. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Thank you, Julia. Thanks for listening to MythMakers podcast, brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCenterForFantasy.org to join in the fun. Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, plus visit our shop for great gifts. Tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favourite podcasts worldwide.